arts are everywhere and in everything. And there's a fascinating, unique person and story behind each one. And that's what the Arthropologist is all about. Exploring the arts, one unique person and one unique story at a time. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. On this episode of The Arthropologist, I'm interviewing mezzo-soprano Kirsten Chavez. Kirsten, welcome to The Arthropologist. It is so good to see you again. Oh, thank you, Bill. It's great uh, to be here. To my audience, one of the most rewarding parts of my job as an artist is the times I get to spend with other amazing creative people. I believe I met Kirsten in January of 2016 when she performed Carmen in Jackson, Mississippi. And wow, what a performance. It was just so amazing. And I was so privileged. I was commissioned to paint the backgrounds and do a portrait of Kirsten for the opera. Now, I like to just get right into the interview so uh, everyone can get to know my guest immediately, but I will give this teaser. Now, this is not my commentary. This is, this is the commentary of critics and audiences worldwide. Kirsten Chavez is considered by critics and audiences alike to be the most riveting and significant mezzo-sopranos today and is recognized worldwide as the definitive Carmen. So without further ado, <laughs> welcome to the Arthropologist. Kirsten, Thank tell you, everybody, Bill. Yeah, tell everybody about yourself. Oh, Bill, I am I am a lucky soul. I'll tell you that. I'm uh, I grew up singing with my father. I started singing when I was five, and he was a, a specialist in Spanish American folk music. And so he would sit there with his guitar and teach me these songs in Spanish. And, and uh, I learned them on my own and started singing them with him and on my own. And when I was nine, I thought, you know what? I'm gonna be a singer for my life. And I pretty much thought I would take over from Barbara Streisand because I was really listening to a lot of musical theaters at that time. And my parents uh, directed some of the shows at my school and I was in them. And, I thought that was really great. And I remember as a 17 year old senior, um, somebody coming up to me and saying, oh, you're gonna be a wonderful Carmen someday. And I was aghast. I thought, why, why would I wanna do that? Cause I was pretty sure that opera singers all sounded funny and they looked weird. And that just sounded like a really bad idea. And fast forward a couple of years and I started studying uh, officially uh, classical music. Um, and lo and behold, I fell in love with classical music and then fell in love with opera. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, me being Carmen wasn't such a laughable affair. <laughs> I thought it was a great idea. And I started studying her diligently and other roles as well. But she's been my one true love, you might say. And so I first played her uh, officially in the year 2000. And uh, she and I have only grown closer and closer since then. So it's uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey um, to, to you learn grew up. Did you, you're, you were born in New Mexico. Yes. But, but you at least spent part of your childhood in Kuala Lumpur? 
Yeah, weird, right? Right. My parents, um, they were actually uh, concerned about influences from uh, Hispanic gangs in Colorado when I was very young, and they felt that my brother was maybe uh, susceptible to their influences. And so that among other reasons, they decided, well, let's move to somewhere nobody's ever heard of. Um, and so we moved to Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And that's really where I grew up. I was there from age seven to 17. I graduated from high school there and then, and then came back to the States for college. Wow. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> How did did that culture you feel like really influenced the way you see the world and see Carmen and everything? I'm assuming it would. Uh, yeah, I think it really, really did, Bill. I love that you asked that. It's, you know, it it, it was an interesting time. I, I wouldn't say it was an especially happy childhood for me. Um, I felt kind of out of place uh for most of the time that i was living in malaysia you know i i would go walking on the street to school or whatever and people would honk at me and whistle at me and call at me all the time because i didn't look like they did so it was a it was a strange uh childhood but but it certainly opened my eyes um it opened my eyes to different cultures different ways of thinking different religions different languages different food um all of that and i gosh i am so so grateful for that part of my upbringing because um you know it's i feel like a, a citizen of the world um i missed out perhaps on some of the deep hispanic culture that is rich in new mexico and i and i i'm sorry for that but i i gained so much um in terms of my my worldview and my exposure to to different ways of being and um it's made it really uh really wonderful for me to be someone who travels around the world uh to sing um because i feel oddly enough i felt not at home in malaysia while i was growing up but now i feel at home most anywhere i go which is a really really great blessing nice nice um Okay, since we're starting uh, starting off with your beginning of your career, let me read this, and then I got a question. Um, I don't remember where I got this, maybe off your website, but it said, after beginning an artistic residency with the Orlando Opera, Ms. Chavez won several major international competitions, the Sullivan Foundation, the George London Foundation, the Licia Albanese Puccini Foundation, the Opera Index Foundation, the Goethe, is that Goethe? Gerta uh -huh. Listener Foundation, the Jensen Foundation. First question, did you allow anybody else to win anything? Well, for about a year, year and a half, two years, I, I tried to seal up as many as I could. <laughs> okay. Well, um, <laughs> uh, I will say this. Then the last one, the uh, the national, you were a national finalist in the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions. I was yes. told uh, by a friend that was huge, that that's a career maker and very possibly was what kickstarted your career. Is that the case? You know, I, I would say it certainly was absolutely huge for me. And it was interesting because the year that I won, which was in 1999, um, 
was unfortunately the year that they decided to change the competition a little bit. So they chose a bunch of, of semi-finalists from all over the country to come in. I think there were probably 25 to 30 of us who all came in to New York for about a week. And then from the national semi-finalists, they chose the finalists. And in every year before my year, the national finalists were considered the 10 winners, period, end of story. But in 1999, they decided to make the national finalists go through another round, and then they chose three to five ultimate winners. So had I won in 1998, I would have been a national winner. But as it was, I was a national finalist because I was not one of the three to five that they chose in the very end. But nonetheless, uh, the, the Met, um, you know, there are a lot of feelings that we as, as national singers have about our premier opera company. But one thing I can say is that they, they do their best to support the artists that they believe in. And for those of us who are fortunate enough to go the long distance with them in the competition, they stand behind you and they, you know, they offer um, educational funds to uh, former winners. And I tapped into that, which helped me to pay for learning additional roles and things like this. And then by the time I made my Met debut in 2005, um, you know, they were old friends. So it felt like, you know, finally getting to sit at the big table <laughs> at home. Um, and, you know, they've been very, very good to me really ever since. And uh, I'm not there every single year, um, but I get to be there often, which is a real, a real blessing for me. Okay. Well, now you've toured all over the world in your career, but as I understand, many young singers to establish their career they get started in Europe, especially Germany, since Germany has opera companies supported by the state. Is that something you did? You know, I, uh, I didn't go that route, but it was something that I was looking into um, and was very aware of. You're absolutely right. Um, Germany does have state supported opera houses and they have a lot of them which is one reason why so many American singers go over there. Also, they have a really interesting system called the FEST system, whereby they have a group, sometimes large, sometimes smaller, depending on the size of the opera company, a group of singers who are with them all year long and perhaps for multiple years. Um, and this, this FEST system is very, very predominant in the German speaking opera houses. And it's where young opera singers can get a lot of experience doing, you know, sometimes smaller roles, sometimes larger roles, depending on what the opera company is, uh, has planned for the year. And it can be a great way to get a lot of experience and to really wet your teeth in the career. And uh, I, I strongly considered it, um, but I had <laughs> spent six years in Rochester, New York, um, where I did my master's at Eastman School of Music. And it was it was very cold and snowy and and a bit dark. And uh, that climate is very like what you'll find in much of Germany. <laughs> and so 
I, you know, having grown up in a tropical country, I just couldn't wrap my brain around doing that again. I was very fortunate in that I was able to kind of get my career going through uh, young artist programs here in this country. And, and that was extremely beneficial to me. And that's where I started uh, networking with, with folks. That's where I met my first agent and got my first professional gigs that started my career. Talk a little bit about the audition process where, you know, you've got maybe hundreds of performers auditioning. Uh, what factors go into making one win over another other than just raw talent? I mean, is your personality, uh, your looks? I mean, I can even wonder about what time of day. I mean, I, I can imagine going in right before lunch and you got a bunch of hungry judges and they're more interested in what's what's coming up for lunch than they are listening to you. So tell me what it's like and what you have to do other than just being a great singer to stand out in a competition, in a, in an audition. That's a really great question, Bill. And so many of us really dislike auditions because um, it doesn't necessarily give judges a good idea of what you're capable on stage. Think about it. We're usually in a small room the acoustic may or may not be any good. Uh, we may even be with a pianist we've never met before. Um, and, you know, we're walking into a situation we, we basically know nothing. And we've somehow got to wow you within two or three minutes, um, bringing in a character, um, trying to flesh out a character within two or three minutes. And so it's an absurdly uh, non-helpful um, uh, way to gauge what a singer can do. That said, there are some singers who audition really, really well. They have uh, the various qualities that, that really make it work. And there are some singers who are astoundingly wonderful on stage and who do not audition well. And so it's a very skewed process that is uh, not a lot of fun for us. But um, I would say that to, to do um, a successful audition, um, you really only have control over maybe two thirds of the process. As you mentioned, they're probably thinking about lunch or dinner and they, they come with so many biases, you know, they don't, uh, judging a singer on how he or she sings or looks or whatever is extremely subjective. It's, I like it, I don't like it. And, uh, you know, there's no need to explain why you like it or why you don't like it. And so you may come into a situation where, um, you know, if I'm auditioning for Carmen and I do an audition for Carmen and I do it, you know, just my way. And I, you know, I, I deliver what charisma I can in the few moments that I may say hello or introduce myself. Um, and, and perhaps, uh, you've heard of me, and so in your mind, I am Carmen. And so the audition is merely, a, you know, it's it's not really that important because in your mind already, I am Carmen. And then for somebody else coming in to audition for Carmen after me, uh, there's maybe nothing they can do because the judge or the the casting person has seen me and they think, okay, well, that's Carmen. And so, you know, we'll let these other people sing, but you know, they don't really stand a chance. Um, and the reverse can just as easily be true. 
So I can remember, for example, <laughs> one, one year early in my career, um, I wanted to get the role of Cherubino in The Marriage of Figaro. And Cherubino is what's what we call a pants role, where a mezzo-soprano plays a young boy. And these are very common in our repertoire. And the, the company that I was wanting to do the role with, the head of the company had only ever seen me do female roles and felt that there was, I had no business to audition for a pants role. And so we arranged an audition anyway, and I wore a pantsuit and pulled my hair back and walked like a boy and I got the role. <laughs> But it was a lot to go through to try to convince him that, you know, with the proper costuming and whatnot, I was very capable of doing the role. Um, so there are a lot of biases we have to deal with and personal taste. And I think it's important for young singers to understand that there's a certain amount that you can control how you look physically, how you dress, how you sound. You know, all of these things are within your control, but there's at least a third of the process that is outside your control. And that is what the judge is bringing to the table, what they already have in their mind as far as who, what that role should look like or sound like. And that's the part that you have to be willing to let go of because there's just no no way around it for us. Right. Um, let's, I want to talk about your voice for just a minute. You're a mezzo-soprano. Yes. Um, tell us, where does that fit in within the vocal range? Great. So in the vocal range, the very basic role, uh, parts are the soprano, which is the highest female voice, the mezzo-soprano, which is the lower female voice. Then you have the tenor, the high male voice, and baritone bass, the low male voice. Within those categories, so for example, within the mezzo-soprano category, we have mezzo-sopranos who may uh, specialize in um, the higher mezzo-soprano repertoire or the lower mezzo-soprano repertoire. There are also different kinds of music, a kind of music called coloratura, which means colorful, which means we're singing lots of notes very fast up and down and all over the place. And that's a very specific style of music. Um, the, the composer Giacomo Rossini was well known for that style. And certain voices can move more easily than other voices. And so we have mezzo-sopranos who specialize in that. Then you may have a mezzo-soprano who specializes in Carmen because she has the proper hair. Uh, she sort of looks like what Carmen is described as in the score. Um, and that would be a lower mezzo-soprano. There are some mezzo-sopranos who specialize in the pants roles because their body type really is very conducive to um, being, you know, in, in a costume to make, make to, be, to look a little bit more masculine, that sort of thing. Um, so we have a lot of subcategories within the major categories, but typically the mezzo-soprano is almost the lowest female voice. There is an additional one called the contralto and the contralto voice, a true contralto voice is very rare. Um, it's a very, very low sounding female voice, lower than mine, if you can imagine that. And, uh, but there, there are very few roles for them actually in opera because they are very rare. Um, I was going to ask you within your, uh, within being a mezzo, 
are you more comfortable in coloratura, lyric, or dramatic mezzo? Excellent question. So I would be a very comfortable with the lyric mezzo-soprano repertoire. Um, and I, there was a period of time where I was a coloratura mezzo, probably not um, the best one you've ever heard because in this day and age, the, uh, the taste for coloratura mezzos is to have very, very fast uh, singing. And that's not my specialty, it never was, but I was able to sing that repertoire for a while. Um, I've always been able to do the lyric repertoire, which Carmen falls into that category. Uh, as I get older though, I'm, I'm starting to do a little bit more of the dramatic repertoire. So I have started um, working on some Verdi roles, including Amneris and from, from Aida and Eboli from Don Carlo. Um, those take a little bit bigger, uh, bulkier sound. And very often mezzo-sopranos don't graduate to that repertoire until they're a bit older. Right. And then <clears throat> lastly, you've got a head voice and a chest voice. Could you explain the difference between the two and what that means for a singer? Oh, sure. So um, interestingly, and this is, works a little bit different for male singers versus female singers. In female singers, the differentiation between a head voice and a chest voice is much more obvious. And what you're going to hear in uh, female opera singers almost most of the time is the head voice or what we might call a mixed voice because pure head voice is it's kind of like, you know, think of, of how Mickey Mouse sounds. Hey, little boys. It's kind of like that. Um, but a mixed voice in a, in a female sound has a little bit more depth to it. And it's where we use a bit of the chest voice sound quality in together with the, mic, the head voice to create a mix. So that's a stronger head voice but it uses some of the musculature that governs the chest voice. And then the chest voice is the kind of sound that you're going to hear most often from female pop singers, jazz singers, and musical theater singers. They sing like this. It's kind of, um, it's the bottom part of our ranges and an opera singer will very rarely sing in pure chest voice. Um, it's, that's kind of something that we use for effect, but also most of our repertoire, certainly in the mezzo-soprano repertoire is not written so low that we would need to use the chest voice very often. So a mezzo-soprano is more often going to be heard in that mixed voice sound, which is a combination of chest voice and head voice. Okay. Do, are you ever mic'd when you're performing opera? So yes, uh, but almost never. So if I'm performing in a traditional opera, then absolutely not. There is no miking whatsoever. I have to make my own volume. But there are some operas nowadays that are maybe more hybrid or um, the, the, the environment is a little bit different and, and miking is required. I've done a few modern pieces where miking was necessary because of the nature of the piece, because uh, in one instance, for example, a piece that I did at Covent Garden, um, the composer 
had written in the score that at certain places, my voice would be electronically manipulated, uh, which means that they had to have amplification. And then while I was singing, they were adding various effects to my sound. Um, as you might guess, that's not very common these days. Um, but every once in a while, there's a situation where we have to be mic'd. However, almost any traditional opera will not have any miking whatsoever. Okay. Um, well, does the head or chest uh, voice help project any at all, or does it just change the flavor of the? It changes the flavor, but I think one of the reasons why a mezzo-soprano relies heavily on a mixed voice, which uses the elements of the chest voice sound, um, is that it helps projection. It also does change the color of the sound, but it does help projection quite a bit. And uh, the soprano doesn't have to worry about that as much because acoustically at the very highest level, they're much easier to hear. But the lower voices have to be a little bit more savvy about how they use the instrument so that the volume can travel sometimes over large distances. The Met Opera House is almost 4,000 seats. And so, as you might imagine, it takes uh, a fair bit of energy and ingenuity uh, to make the, the human voice travel well in that distance. Okay, now let's talk about performance for a second. You performed on stage hundreds and hundreds of times and doing live performances, some are going to be better than others. Uh, you teach, right? I'm, I'm yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay. What do you tell a student about bad performances when you get up and you just feel like you have bombed? How do you get your confidence back? I really appreciate that, um, Bill. That's such a good question. And it's funny because it's uh, a question that I deal with, especially right now in this period of the year with my students, because some of my students, for example, are preparing to give a junior recital in their bachelor's degree. And it's not a required recital, but it's a recital that I require from my students who are really interested in pursuing a performance uh, career. And the thing about it is that um, I, I require them to do the junior recital because I know it's possible that they could have a difficult experience and I need to be able to walk them through that and get them past that so that when it's time for their senior recital a year later, they have much more confidence under their belts. The hard part about what we do, Bill, is that there's <clears throat> there are so many parts of, of our skill set that we cannot work on or learn or improve without actually doing the performing. And, you know, you can you can be in the studio with me, you can be taking voice lessons and we can talk about many things. But until you're put in the pressure cooker of a performance setting, there are certain things that you cannot learn with without that. So, um, you know, I, I make it clear to my students that they may well have a difficult experience during a junior recital, for example. It may well there are parts of it that may not go the way they want to go. And it's really important that we debrief after that so that we can talk about, okay, well, what did, what are the reasons why this didn't go well? Were you not as prepared as you should have been? Which is going to be 
very often the case. Uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, students who are preparing recitals for the first time don't realize how much time they really need to have having memorized their songs before performance. Because when you get into the pressure cooker of performance, you're nervous, you're, you know, the breathing goes away and you forget all the words. And again, until you've started to experience that, you can't really work on improving that. And they have to experience it firsthand. So um, it's important to learn why the performance didn't go well and then understand that that doesn't dictate how every performance is going to go from here and that we do have some control over how to improve so that the next time won't have the same result. Could you share at least one sort of amusing story of a live performance, costume fail, prop fail, some somebody just completely forgets their lines. What, what happened? What did you do? You know, it brings me to um, a, a really important element of what we do, Bill, that a lot of people don't realize and that not even every singer realizes. But I find that it is, it's extremely important in the rehearsal process to build camaraderie, to make friends with the folks uh, with whom you're going to be sharing the stage. Um, and that means your fellow lead characters, and it means your choristers, it means your, your backstage folks, it means your costume person, your makeup person, all of those people. We need to make friends uh, because you never know when you're gonna need your friend to help you out of a squeeze. I know I have lots of stories I could tell, um, and many of them have uh, you know a lot of similarities, but I can remember one moment, I don't even remember what show it was, it probably was Carmen, um, where you know I was, everything was going along just swimmingly, and I was coming down this set of stairs on the set, and my skirt, the, the hook and eye in, in the back of my skirt, somehow um, impaled itself on the railing of the stairs. And I was supposed to continue down the stairs and do all sorts of wonderful things, <laughs> but I was a little bit stuck. And so in that moment, I had to decide, was it, was it better to stay stuck where I was and do the scene from there? Or was it better to try to break free and perhaps lose my skirt? Fortunately, I had friends <laughs> and they realized what was happening and they were able to set me free so that eventually I was able to get back into the staging that I had intended and managed to stay clothed, which I thought was a win-win. <laughs> Maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, again, along this same vein, uh, for those who don't know, and you correct me if I, if I get wrong on this, when opera first started, I believe in the 1600s, of course, it was for private audiences, the king or whatever. But very quickly, and I don't remember who it was, um, he began writing operas that opened it up for the general audience. And when that happened, it exploded onto the scene and everybody loved it. But that made opera the, the popular place to go so that it wasn't the stereotypical today, men in tuxes, women in ball gowns going, 
these were the regular people and there would be people in the audience talking incessantly. There were vendors out in the audience, just like at a baseball game, selling food. And when uh, the, the boxes in the balconies were first added, they were added so that the wealthy could play games, cards, chess, eat, and just visit. Right. Now, what that leads me to is that would be like just the most, like performing in a jungle. <laughs> what, have you ever done anything like that? Or can you imagine performing in a venue where you're literally someone's walking along as you're doing one of your arias and someone's singing, you know, red hot, red hot's for sale. Have you ever well, done anything like that? I have, I have, and it's not a lot of fun. Um, but it also helps to round you out as a performer. I, I've sung in in various restaurants. I worked at a restaurant once where all the wait staff were were professional singers. And so we would, you know, serve your your tricolore salad and then grab the microphone and do an aria for you. Um, and uh, but I've sung in, in lots of situations where uh, you know, you're sort of meant to be background music. And if you have any kind of ego at all, that's difficult to do. Um, uh, and I've, I've even sung in places where, you know, I'm expecting people to enjoy what I'm offering. And instead they seem annoyed that I'm preventing them from having a conversation, which is, it's not, you know, not what we expect, but at the same time, it challenges you. Can you uh, keep up appearances? Can you continue? Can you uh, be artistic anyway? For the one person who's actually paying attention, are you going to be artist enough to deliver for that one person in spite of all the 50 who are paying no attention and talking around you? And, you know, uh, I, I can't say that I enjoy those sorts of situations. I'm sure that my uh, my fellows who were doing opera all those many years ago probably didn't love that. But if I were doing an opera in that situation, I think it would cause me to rely more heavily on my fellows in the cast and for us to kind of do it for each other. And, you know, I, I, I think that would have been a way to survive that <laughs> otherwise very challenging situation. Yeah. Um yeah, I think I said earlier, my questions are kind of all over the place. So all right. uh, I'll bounce back over to your voice. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, as you mature, uh, you're changing up a little bit. And uh, I know that voices do change over time. Um, when you first started out, uh, you probably had to do lighter roles, not Verdi or uh, what you said you did, Amneris and Aida. And uh, I've been told that's a very demanding role. Uh, explain to the listeners a little bit about what that means as far as doing. And I believe I've been told that Wagner is possibly the most challenging of the operas from a physical standpoint. So what type of lighter roles do beginner, beginning singers take and then as you mature, what then opens up for you? And then maybe explain 
what's changing is your is your voice actually physically changing or is it you're just getting more experienced great question bill so if i were to look at just the mezzo-sopranos um a young mezzo-soprano would be very well served to work on mozart um the orchestration in mozart operas is typically much lighter and that means that a, a smaller or a lighter voice can be heard without any problem uh in fact um much of the the mozart uh dramatic material is progressed through um a music that that is called recitative and recitative is like spoken dialogue it's it's sung but it's like dialogue between a few people and it is orchestrated only with harpsichord which is a very very light instrument and easy to sing with and over and so um mozart is an excellent choice for some uh younger soprano mezzo soprano sopranos um as you move up the ladder a little bit you might uh venture into slightly later repertoire for example bellini um, if you have the capacity to move your voice a lot, Rossini is also an excellent, excellent choice. Um, and then as you get older, part of it is experience, Bill, um, understanding how to use your voice healthfully and to not damage the voice. Because young singers, um, if they try to take on repertoire that is too big for them, then in order for them to be heard, they end up having to push the sound in unhealthy ways, which could ultimately permanently damage the voice that has happened. So um, that's the reason why uh, young singers have to avoid doing inappropriate repertoire. But as you get older, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what happens, but the, the, the changes are physical. Um, to to the vocal cords themselves, but also to the muscles surrounding the vocal cords. Um, and the body itself is part of our instrument and the body changes. But very often for many, many singers, uh, the sound of the voice tends to darken a little bit and maybe even get a little bit larger as, as age comes. And different voice types mature at different ages. So the higher voice types tend to mature at younger ages. So sopranos, mid twenties, late twenties, early thirties would be their prime. Mezzo sopranos and baritones and basses, um, they're going to mature more like in their mid forties and beyond. So uh, the lower the voice, the longer it takes for full maturity. Um, and there's a lot of fun to be had, you know, the, I, I looked forward to singing more Mahler um, for many years and now uh, it's perfect. <laughs> so. yeah, I was told that um, that as a, a singer uh, matures that and or ages, let's put it this way, as they age, that the higher range is what tends to get lost first. So that sopranos lose more of their higher range much more quickly than a mezzo would so that sometimes mezzos can have a longer career than a soprano. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. I think some of the high register, um, 
huh, maybe the super high, like the queen of the night high might, might tend to go. Um, but those are very specialized roles. Um, so that, that may, that may well be. Okay. Um, let me ask this. How many languages do you sing in? So I sing in German, French, Italian, English, Spanish, Russian, Czech. Those are the primary ones that I sing in. Um, okay. are, do you know those languages or are you using the international phonetic alphabet to sound it out? What, what are you doing? So I have studied German, French, Italian, and Spanish. I've studied those languages as languages. Um, where Russian and Czech are, are involved, I do use or have used the International Phonetic Alphabet and the study of the diction of those languages. So with the, the primary languages that a classical singer will use are is Italian, German, French, maybe Spanish. So we have to have a, a very good working knowledge of those languages as languages in addition to understanding the proper diction of the speaking of those languages and the singing of those languages, which are not necessarily the same thing. Okay. All right. Now here again, you're going to have to correct me if I misunderstand or if I just get wrong in, in the history of opera. Um, but where my question is going to lead is that, uh, is there a difference in, in your mindset or how you have to uh, approach opera when you're singing in different languages? For instance, um, Italian, because it's got many vowels and is multisyllabic, it lends itself more to coloratura than say French, which is much more limited. So it lends itself more to recitative and then German, which is so short and clipped that, um, as I understand, they actually, I think it was Wagner, actually created Singspiel to uh, actually uh, uh, highlight the way German is spoken. And then also, like, Russian is, um, has asymmetrical metering. So it's it's not sung the the meter of the music is is very different than anything else in europe does that affect you as a singer at all or is that simply the librettist and the uh the composer's uh field and you as a singer don't really care no we care a lot and here's the thing um as i mentioned a second ago the uh the way that a language is spoken is not the same as the way a language is sung. Now, that said, I, as a singer singing in German, must know both. I must know how to sing in German and I must know how to speak in German. And I must know the differences and why it's necessary to do them differently. Um, I would say that the different languages have their different characteristics. Um, and, and that does come through in the the operas that are written by composers who speak those native languages so yes the the german and the french and the italian and the russian they have um different feels to them for example the french language is very um can every word is connected to another 
si je parle en français comme ça, je peux dire des mots euh, très connectés comme ça. Right, so it's very difficult listening to French if you're not a native speaker to know where one one word begins and another and it ends and then the other one starts and because they all sound super connected and many of the French music reflects that and we as singers who sing in French have to approach it somewhat differently in order to give the proper French feel to the style. Um, that said. I, I would say that different kinds of, of writing, whether it's coloratura writing or recitative or lyric writing, these can all be very well achieved in every language. If you have a skillful, skillful singer who knows how to use the mechanism and how to bring the language out properly. So okay. lots is possible. Okay. Um, now, again, this is being taped. So if you want to, the the next question I have, if it's if it's kind of sensitive or whatever, we can just blip over it. Um, but uh, I want to read uh, some of the critics, uh, some of their descriptions of your performances, and then I got a question for you. Okay. Okay. She exuded undeniable sensuality and cleavage, dark, generous mezzo earthy eroticism, volcanic spontaneity, and smoldering charisma. Um, her voice oozed effortlessly out of her, throaty and exotic, sensual as Marilyn Monroe, as bright as Catherine Hepburn, and down to earth as Sandra Bullock. And then the last one, fiery yet playful sexuality. Okay, now here's my question. When you and I worked together in 2016, you were also teaching um, a college student uh, your part and trying to help her along. And you were trying to show her how to be more sensual and erotic. And she was not getting <laughs> at all. And not to be crude or crass, but as we were going home, my wife actually commented and she said, you know, I think she's probably a virgin and she just cannot get in touch with that type of sex, her, her sexuality yet. The reason I ask that is that for those who have not seen you perform, you're incredible. I mean, you are so vibrantly sensual and it just, it just exudes all over, all over the stage. How do you teach something like that? How do you get a performer and say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to be erotic without being, because what I want the listeners to understand is that there's a difference between just grotesquely vulgar sexuality hmm. and sensuality. Yeah. And when I worked with you, um, you know, we would be like this, we'd be talking. And then when you would get into character so I could, photograph you for the painting I mean all of a sudden it would turn on and it was just like wow I mean it really was a genuine sensuality how do you is it just innate how do you teach or, or bring that out of a student thank you Bill I I so appreciate that so first of all I think that's why certain young singers would migrate toward or away from a character like Carmen. 
Um, there are plenty of mezzo-sopranos who um, don't, don't have a real grasp of sensuality and how to express it. Um, and I think, to be honest, I, I don't think you can teach it, but here's what you can teach and what you can encourage. And that is, you must be able to teach your student um, how to be comfortable with him herself. And, and that is the first and largest hurdle by far. Um, I'll tell you when I, it's very interesting because first, first the student must learn how to be comfortable with themselves and their own bodies and, and what, what it means to express certain things, what, what is needed to express certain things. So the comfort with themselves is critical, but then to be able to get comfortable in very close proximity to another human being is extremely difficult to do. And I, I'm so grateful for my time working at Bergamo's Italian restaurant in Orlando, because this is the restaurant I told you where all of the waitstaff were professional singers. And what I quickly discovered <laughs> was that I would make better tips if I could sing up close and personal to the people that I was singing for. And so I, that's what I did. And it really, at first it was extremely difficult. Um, and what I learned was that I had to know my music and my words like dead cold. Like I had to have nothing I was wondering about in my head because it would go completely out of your head if there was any question. So you had to know your music cold. Um, but to learn how to sing in a very intimate setting um, really was almost as important as learning how to be comfortable with myself because um, it, it's that vulnerability, that willingness to be vulnerable, which allows you to be sensual in front of other people. And um, it's, it's a very... Uh, useful expressive tool but i don't think it's one that just everybody has i think that uh, certain people are comfortable with that kind of expression and certain people are not and so you know carmen is a role that very clearly requires that it's you know i mean she has this hair and she's hispanic and she speaks french and there are certain things that carmen requires that are not required in just about any other role that you could think of. Uh, so again, it would be a reason why, um, for example, if, if I might have a young mezzo-soprano who's not at all comfortable trying to express sensuality, but she excels as a pants role singer because she likes to be masculine and scrappy and all of that. So there's room for all of us um and and thank heaven for that because <laughs> uh there there are many many different kinds of roles to choose from and that's one thing that 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 helps guide where our career is going to go okay um now this may be old news I, i'm not sure but kind of along the same topic i stumbled on um some articles from 2017 when the met was demanding that some of their female performers 
perform either nude or semi-nude or take a 50% pay cut. Um, and I know that there are operas that, you know, nudity would fit right in. I'm thinking of Messonet's uh, Teus or Mignon, but I mean, certainly not all. Uh, but again, how do you uh, talk to your students who, you know, they may face something like that, or is that just a blip that happened and that's not really a part of the opera world anymore? Well, um, it's never been a part of the opera world. I can say that certainly not in this country. And it's not something that we really ever have to deal with. There are, are a couple roles where, um, where nudity is a possibility or where partial nudity, nudity is a possibility. For example, the role of Zalome written by Richard Strauss. Typically, the final scene uh, of that opera involves nudity from the main character. But but to be honest, Bill, that's the only one I can think of where that is sort of part of maybe maybe what's expected. And so uh, a, a singer who is drawn to that role has to have that understanding. But it's really about the only opera role I can think of where that is understood. Um, my guess is that it, where the Met was concerned, I don't know because I don't remember that coming up, but it was probably not uh, lead character opera singers. It might have been some folks in the dance department or in the I chorus. believe it was. And, and, and from what I saw on the article, it was just basically uh, running in. It appeared as if they were running into financial problems. They were trying to get more seats in more fannies in the seats. And so mm -hmm. that was one way they felt like they could do it. And apparently it was a bit of a brouhaha, but, you know, not being in the opera world, I didn't know, well, is that something that just sort of happened and now they've got past that? Or is this something that's sort of a, a, a recurring theme or that's becoming bigger in opera? Because I had not heard any of this before. It's definitely not a recurring theme. And again, I say in this country, in Germany, it can happen at any given moment. Uh, nudity is much, much, much more common. I myself was faced with a situation when I was singing The Rape of Lucretia, a Benjamin Brit Britten opera in Italy. And I showed up for the first day of rehearsal and the director who had already done this particular production elsewhere was just showing us a video of the productions to kind of give us an idea of what to expect. It was a very specific kind of production. And everything was fine until the moment where one, uh, one of the other characters slit open Lucretia's dress and her bare breasts fell out. And uh, I knew that I wasn't going to do that um, because um, I knew that if I did, Anytime you would Google Kirsten Chavez, that's what would come up. And I, I that was not, right. I was not interested in that. Right. Um, it, it didn't make any sense to have that be a thing. And, and for them, it really wasn't a big deal. But thankfully, I was able to give them other ideas of ways that we could achieve what he wanted to achieve as a director in that moment that didn't involve, you know, partial nudity. It's really not the sort of thing that happens almost ever with opera singers in this country, Bill. Part of the reason for that is that um, 
to to try to try to put it delicately, we breathe in very athletic ways. And we have to use our bodies in very specific ways to support making a very large sustained sound. And uh, not many of us would stand up to any scrutiny compared to models or this or that who can suck in their gut and who don't have to make that kind of noise from an athletic standpoint. And so a lot of times if you're watching a singer sing, if they have no clothes on, it's not necessarily, if they're going to sing well, they're not going to look great. They're either going to hold their breath and not sing and, and maybe look okay, or they're going to breathe as they need to breathe for singing and not look great. And so it's not something that, that we very often are asked to do. Okay. Well, this actually helps me segue beautifully into my next question. Um, for the average listener, um, the stereotype of the large Wagnerian female performer is what's in their mind. That's what we uh, normally think of. But the reality is uh, it's quite different. Um, opera is incredibly athletic. Um, you're especially for certain parts like Carmen, you may be moving around the stage quite a bit, jumping on a table, doing all sorts of things, but also just the physicality of being able to have the lung capacity to project your voice over a 4,000 seat auditorium right. is just tremendously uh, taxing. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what sort of exercising you do, what's your diet, what do you do for, to prepare for such a strenuous uh, performance as what you might be doing with, with Carmen? I, I love that you asked that. And uh, yes, with Carmen, I have to dance in the flamenco style very often and uh, dance while singing, which uh, oddly is not very easy to do. <laughs> um, yeah, so for me, uh, I'm an avid exerciser. Um, and I'm a runner. I run half marathons and I lift weights. Um, I'd like to incorporate more yoga into my life. So I'm, I'm working on trying to make that happen. Uh, but it's very critical that I do cardio uh, exercise um, and extended cardio exercise so that I can build up stamina and endurance um, and to, to lift weights so that I can keep a toned body and a muscular body that can move in all sorts of ways. It's, uh, I preach that to all of my students. It's absolutely critical. And very often there are directors who will ask you, especially outside of this country, who will ask you to do physical things that um, are extraordinarily challenging to do while singing. I've been asked to do many crazy things and uh, I'm happy to say that my exercise regimen has made that possible for me. Okay. Um, okay. We know you teach, but you travel. Uh, I know quite, at least before COVID you traveled right. a lot. So right. can you um, talk to the listeners about in a, in a non COVID year when you were traveling, um, how long were you on the road uh, and where all would you go? <laughs> so um, again, every year is different. Uh, outside of the pandemic. 
And, uh, you know, I have an agent who's in New York City who helps to put me up for possible roles and uh, helps me to negotiate my contracts and, and this and that. But, um, you know, I, I was supposed to be in Japan this past summer uh, doing a, a, a version of Carmen. Um, instead, now that's been postponed to, Jip, to uh, July of 2022. Um, things are starting to happen again. And uh, very often, depending on you know the year, I might be in New York working at the Met for two months at a time and then come back to teach my students for a few weeks. And then I travel to other parts of the country to do a concert or another opera. Um, very often in the summers, I'm in uh, Europe. Um, I spend a lot of time in France. Um, there's a program where I teach young singers that usually happens in Germany. Um, and so it just, every year is different. It just depends on, you know, what, uh, what projects I'm, I'm asked to do. And uh, fortunately, um, working at the University of Utah has been wonderful for me in that they support my performing career and they want me to continue that. So I have a lot of support at school when I need to be away for extended periods. It's a great arrangement for me. Uh, one thing that sort of hits me personally is that uh, I work in the movie industry as well as doing illustration work. Wow. Now, I prefer working more. Uh, I mean, I've been on camera and done some other things, but I actually prefer working offset, especially doing things like storyboarding and concept design and things like that, because wow. I can do it in my studio. But right. other people in my family, like my son, he's a director, he's a producer, he's a UPM. And so there are times he's gone for six weeks at a time. That right. is very taxing on, uh, you know, personal relationships. And relationships. Family. Yeah. And so I, that's where I was going to ask you. Um, it seems like you may have to sometimes be gone for weeks, if not months at a time. Yes. What do you tell your students about what expectations to have for marriage and dating and things like that and children? Well, I, that's a great question, Bill. Um, I, I, we do talk about it sometimes. Um, and, and it is a point of concern. Um, but I tell them that uh, I had to learn in some cases the hard way that communication needs to be active and needs to be frequent. And so um, my tendency when I was younger was to kind of uh, not communicate very well with my friends and family and really immerse myself in the place where I was currently working which was nice because in, in a way, because I developed really good relationships in my different gigs, but um, I would hear from my family, you know, look, we feel like you just totally forgot about us the whole time you were gone, which was not at all what I wanted for them to feel. So I literally, I would start writing in, in my calendar every week, you know, on this day, I contact this person on this day, I contact that person. And that's what I mean. It has to be a conscious, um, commitment to communicate, even, you know, if you don't feel like it or you're busy with other things or whatever, you have to cultivate your relationships because you cannot rely on them. You know, I, I'm just going to see that person tomorrow and I can continue this conversation. Then we don't have that luxury. 
So it has to be something that you are consciously doing actively and frequently. And then anything is possible as long as there's communication. Okay. Um, I wanted to change directions a little bit. Um, I read something on your website that uh, I wanted to read a little bit of and uh, let get you to talk about it. Um, it says that um, over the past two years, and I, I guess that's relative to when this was written, Kirsten and several talented colleague friends have prepared, created and prepared Kirsten's new one woman Carmen show called Carmen Inside Out. This is a dream realized for Kirsten because it provides an outlet for her to share the depths and intricacies of the character of Carmen, who has been who has come to be so much a part of her during her 20 plus career, uh, professional career. Um, of course, this was done in 2020 before the pandemic, but it says that you had too many tours of the show in the UK and in France and in planning a tour in Europe and Asia. Tell us about that. Sounds like it's something really great. It, it, I think it is, um, Bill. Thank you for asking about that. It is a project that's very near and dear to my heart. And the reason that it is, or one of the main reasons that it is, is because Carmen is often portrayed as some sort of low, uh, uh, baseless kind of uh, crass character who's very loose and sleeps with everybody and is mean and all of these things. And I, I don't understand why that is the case. If you look at the score, the libretto and the music, you'll, you'll see if you're really looking that that makes zero sense that, that the, the, the story itself could not possibly happen if Carmen was those things. And so I feel very passionately about that. <laughs> and so part of the reason that I wanted to do this show was to give my version of what Carmen's experience is. And so the show involves a lot of, um, of course, most uh, of, of Carmen's music from Bizet's opera, but it also involves moments where Carmen talks about what she's thinking or what she's experiencing when certain things are happening in, in her life. And, you know, admittedly, it's my version of, of Carmen, but again, I think it's a version that's based on a lot of, of history with the role and the character and having done it in many, many, many different kinds of settings. So um, Carmen Inside Out is, yeah, it's a, it's a one woman show that can be done with either piano or orchestra. And it, it allows me to tell Carmen's story, but also it utilizes what I call this idea of interactive performance, where much like I was describing what I learned how to do at the Italian restaurant in Orlando, where I go up very, very close to sing to you, I do this when I perform Carmen Inside Out. I go into the audience and play with various audience members who are very unsuspecting and bring them into the performance with me. And uh, gotten a lot of powerful, positive reactions about that. Of course, I'm very careful to avoid people who clearly don't want that, which is fair and fine, um, but uh, most people do. Most people welcome it. And uh, it gives them a whole different level of performance. Um, yeah. I can't... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, I, I wonder if that's not one reason why 
literally, I cannot express this enough to those who are listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube, that Kirsten is considered the definitive Carmen worldwide. Critics pretty much universally agree. And there are different ways of interpreting Carmen. And if you watch some, they can be, she can be very, like you were saying, crude and crass and just a completely different character than the one you portray. And I was so privileged back when you performed in Jackson to see your performance, because like I said earlier, you were, it was a sensual performance as opposed to just being an over the top body or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I appreciate the way you're, uh, you've, built this character but it does lead me to ask how did you formulate this character in your head i mean obviously you were seeing other performers performing this as a as a beginner as a student and they weren't all necessarily performing it this way you know i think i learned most from actually doing the show having conversations with directors and conductors and watching to see what other, you know, uh, of my my fellow stage members, my uh, Don Jose Escamillo, watching to see what they would do. I wouldn't say that it came a lot from watching other people do Carmen. Um, partially because I became very turned off by that very crass portrayal. Um, but I, But I think that you know, studying the score, looking at literally the words that she says and how Bizet set those words in the voice, how the the chorus reacts to Carmen. They, when she's not there, they wanna know why she's not there. Where is she? We want her here with us. Well, if she were this crass, nasty person, I'm sorry, but that would not happen. And uh, her friendships with her fellow gypsies, um, very clearly developed in the score. Now, it may be that if you go to the novella, Carmen, um, that uh, upon which Bizet's opera was based, if you look at the novella, that Carmen is a different character. I will grant you that, absolutely. And she perhaps is more of that cross character. I, I can't remember, it's been such a long time. But Bizet's Carmen is not that. And it is very clear because of not only how Carmen says the words that she says, but how other people react to her. That's that's how I've built the roadmap of who is Carmen. Um, and that's why I feel so strongly about it. Okay. Um, and with the pandemic, are you going to be able to get started back? Are you really performing much anymore? So amazingly i have my first performances next month which i'm unbelievably grateful for it's going to be a little bit interesting uh because this is going to be la tragedie de carmen which is yet another version of carmen not my version of carmen um but it's a version that's been done around this country a fair bit um it's was written by a gentleman by the name of peter brook and it it very much truncates the story of Carmen. It's really just the four main characters, the bullfighter, the soldier, the soldier's old girlfriend and Carmen. 
and uh, it tells kind of a different version. So it'll be really interesting to try to make my Carmen live in that environment. I'm not sure what to expect. We start rehearsals on Wednesday, but I can tell you that uh, I'm in talks to do a, a movie version of my Carmen, Carmen Inside Out. Um, and hopefully that will come out uh, early in 2022. So. Oh, awesome. That is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, we've actually kind of gone through my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about yourself or the opera or Carmen? Well, uh, I just want to say, Bill, that I was so, so delighted when I heard from you. And as I have mentioned to you, I think of you so often uh, because the incredible portrait that you made of me as Carmen um, is one of my most beloved prized possessions. And it's only my possession because um, it was auctioned off to two wonderful donors in Mississippi who then turned around and gave it to me because they knew how much I loved your work. And that, that portrait of me um, has an extremely prominent place in my home. And I delight in looking at it every day. I marvel at it. it it's, it's one of my most beloved possessions and you are an incredibly talented artist. And I, again, I was so pleased when I, when I heard from you and honored beyond measure that you would want to uh, include me in your show. I'm deeply honored by that. And I so hope that very soon I will get to see you again, Bill, and we'll, oh. we'll have more fun together. Yes. Uh, well, I appreciate those sweet words. This has been so wonderful. I have just had a delightful time. Um, an hour and a half is just blown by. It's it just has. been wonderful. It has. Um, well, Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thank you, uh, all of my listeners. And uh, I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. If you enjoyed this episode of The Arthropologist, there are more episodes on YouTube. To see my work, you can visit my website, BillWilsonStudio.com, where I have my books, prints, and originals for sale. I'm a portrait painter and illustrator, and there you can contact me about commissioned work. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the anthropologist.